0: aloha friends i'm Dorina,
1: and i'm sean welcome to eat pray run
0: if you've listened to our walk run sore podcast in the past we are so thrilled to have you back and if you're new around here welcome our podcast got a little makeover this summer and you can count on the same refreshing interviews and encouraging reflections but with a little bit of a twist
1: As we launch into Season 3, join us for an adventure chasing God's glory as we eat, pray, and run. Darina and I are hosting conversations with athletes, artists, chefs, and authors about food, culture, books, and faith. This is a podcast about learning to chase God's glory in our everyday lives. You can expect a thoughtful quote, an engaging interview, and a little prayer.
0: Each week, I share a little story that points us back to God's glory. I was a voracious reader when I was young. Part of this was instigated by my mother, who was a teacher and read books aloud to my brother and me. She invited us to venture through the wardrobe into another world with Lucy, Edmund, Susan, and Peter. She made the poetry of Robert Frost come alive as we imagined those two roads that diverged in a yellow wood. And my favorite picture book when I was a child was a book called Nine Days to Christmas by Hall Etz, a Caldecott winner. In the early 80s, it was one of the few books that I could find that featured a girl with brown skin like mine and included rich cultural details. Although our family did not have Mexican roots, I was mesmerized by this book. It just transported me to another place that somehow felt like home. My mom had lived in Mexico and she affirmed the storyline of this book where a girl named Ceci is eagerly awaiting Las Posadas, the traditional nine-day series of Christmas celebrations in her village. I remember I examined the illustrations and poured over the pages of that book again and again. I felt like I was going to the market with Ceci and her mother to select the biggest piñata we could find. I dreamed of becoming a children's book author one day and writing books like this one. I ended up pursuing a career in newspaper reporting and teaching, but one summer I found out about a class on writing children's books. I knew it was time to pursue my dream of writing for kids. And I eventually enrolled in the MFA program in children's literature at Holland's University. Through my graduate work, I had permission to spend hours in the library reading children's literature and writing stories. And in those years, I had my first baby girl with two more baby girls to come. I longed to write books for my own multiracial daughters and others that centered characters of color. It was during that season that I wrote Cora Cook's Pancit about a Filipino American girl learning to cook a traditional noodle dish with her mama. The book was a compilation of my own experiences growing up in the kitchen with my mama, my grandmas, and aunties, as well as the stories I had gathered of other Filipino American families in California's Central Valley, which is where I live today. I wanted kids to swirl the pancit noodles in the pot and smell the garlic and hear the hiss and sizzle of the onion sauteing. I tried for several years to get that book published, but continued to receive nice rejection letters. Editors and agents told me they liked the story, but the book was too niche to sell. In other words, stories about a specific cultural group like this one would be hard to market. One day I received a phone call from an editor named Renee Ting, and she had just read my manuscript and she wanted to publish it. I almost dropped the phone. When I got home and consulted my notes, I discovered I had submitted my manuscript to Shen's Books 2 years earlier. In a few months, I signed a contract with Shen's, and today that company is actually owned or an imprint of Lee and Lo Books, one of the largest multicultural publishers in our country. I didn't have an agent, but Renee Ting ushered me through the publishing process, and my book baby, Cora Cooks-Ponceit, was born in June 2009 with illustrations by Christy Valiant. Our book was awarded the Picture Book of the Year by the Asian American Librarians Association. We were invited to Washington, D.C. to receive the award and give speeches But friends, the most magical part was meeting my illustrator, Christy, in person and hearing more about her process in creating the beautiful illustrations for the book. Over the next decade, I read Cora Cook's Pansit aloud and spoke to schools up and down the state of California, and my greatest joy was seeing the faces of Filipino-American students light up when they recognized the signature dish that represented their culture, Pansit. On several occasions, I cooked bunsit for classes, students from all different cultures tasted it for the first time. And this was an open door to celebrate diversity and culture, to pivot away from the colorblind rhetoric that so often finds its way into education settings. Today, my Cora book is 11 years old and in her ninth printing I like to think of her as a middle schooler now in this new season for publishing. My heart is so encouraged to see a mounting desire among publishers, schools, and readers for books about and for children of color. My youngest daughter, Zayla, is nine now, and she enjoys books like Colorful by Darina Williamson, Different Like Me by Sochiel Dixon, My Breakfast with Jesus by Tina Cho, the Mindy Kim series by Lila Lee, and Any Day With You by Mae Respicio, featuring kids that look like her. These books are not considered too niche, but regarded as an invitation to readers to learn from and about kids from multicultural backgrounds. If you're interested, you can check out episode two from this season, season three, for a conversation with some of these authors. Friends, we have tasted progress in publishing like an appetizer, but haven't been served the full meal quite yet representation still matters and as an author an educator and a mother of three brave girls i want to be part of serving up new dishes to add to that feast our family recently started a membership program called global glory chasers each month we focus on a specific country and curate a list of books movies music and recipes so families can delve deeper into learning about different cultures together And I believe that reading and listening to diverse stories can help shape all of us. Stories have the power to educate, instruct, and heal. And as a Christian, I look to Jesus as the best model for using stories to heal. Jesus was a storyteller. He brought the good news. He chose to share stories that represented and challenged the people who listened. He invited the marginalized to tell their stories. He didn't elevate the story of a tax collector over an abused woman or a Jew over a Gentile. Instead, he treated each narrative as precious and part of the whole story being written by God himself. His stories resounded with love and forgiveness. Psalm 107 says, "'Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story.'" Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands from east and west, from north and south. These words are an invitation to tell our stories. The Israelites continue to tell the story of how God restored them from captivity. Jesus told stories that would shape our understanding of his father's kingdom. And we are called to tell our stories today. When we have fuller representation of stories, by God's image bearers, we experience a more dynamic narrative of who God is and the work he is doing in our world. Join me as we explore this topic a little bit more. And if you'd like a copy of this reflection on how representation matters in children's literature, you can hop over to my blog at www.darinagilmore.com. Welcome back, friends. I'm your host, Darina Lazo Gilmore-Young, and I'm so excited about today's conversation that I'm going to be having with my new children's book editor. She's actually a former teacher. She lives in the Pacific Northwest, at least for now, and she is an editor with Waterbrook and Multnomah, which is part of the Penguin Random House Group. So help me welcome Bumi Ishola, who is my guest today. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Bumi, can you tell us a little bit about this season of life for you? What is work and home and where do you live and what types of things are you working on in this season?
1: Yeah. So as you mentioned, I actually used to be a teacher. And so I taught middle school for seven years. And I, in the course of that time, I just really felt like I was not living out just the passions that God had given me. And I was not necessarily utilizing my skills the best way that I could. Well, I loved working with kids and I liked putting together lesson plans and trying to like, you know, help explain a concept and make it simplified. I didn't love the actual act of teaching. And there was just a lot of times that I would go into work and just not really feel like I was bringing my best to it. And so that just kind of led me through some deep soul searching and a place that I've always just found a sense of home and a sense of like, just meaning and everything was in books. And so I transitioned to be a children's book editor about three years ago. And just within the last year, I actually am officially acquiring my own list and developing my own list. And I'm really excited to do that. And, but I also, because of the pandemic, get to work remotely. So when my lease ended in Chicago, where I had been living most recently, I actually just came out to the Pacific Northwest to stay with a friend of mine. And we're just kind of having fun. We're, you know, being roommates, we've actually known each other since we were seven. So it's great to kind of reconnect in that way and spend some time together in this season of our life where we can do that. And so, yeah, I'm just kind of enjoying myself traveling a little bit and um,
0: having a good time. I can't complain. (laughs) Well, it's so interesting to me how this time of pandemic has actually opened the doors for a lot of people to do some of those things maybe that they've dreamed about or just have a little more flexibility in their work. I know one of my favorite things is being able to watch you on your adventures as you've done a lot of traveling this year. And traveling is something that's really um, important to our family, something that we love to do too.
1: When I taught, actually, I took my students on international trips almost every summer. And it was something that I loved doing. And I was actually kind of sad about leaving teaching about. That was actually one of the things I was going to miss the most was, oh, no, I don't have these summers to go on these great grand adventures. And so working from home kind of lets me still get to do that, where I can still get work done, but also like travel and see other places, which is what I love doing.
0: I think it's so important to just gather that knowledge about people in different places and different cultures. And I know that's something that you're passionate about as well. We're going to talk about that in a moment, but I think it would be fun for our listeners to tell the story of how you and I met. And I would love for you to go first. And then I want to, I want to tell a little bit of my version too. I'm not so sure why I started following you on.
1: Instagram or Facebook, but somehow I'm following you and you're following me, and I don't know if it's because of the gathering, I don't know if it's because we have some mutual friends in common, but we're we're following each other, and so I, in general, just was enjoying your posts, and you know, you do those early morning Bible study prayer times, and just general some fun posts here and there, and you and your family travel as well, and I just was kind of following your story a little bit, and um, you also previously I had published another book that I was unaware of at the time and had kind of just been thinking in my head like she's just so joyful and she has kids and so I'm just going to reach out to her and see if she like is interested in writing but then I held off and did a bit more digging and that's when I discovered Cora Cook's uh, pen Seats and I was like oh so she has written a kids book before let's see if she wants to write more <laughs> and so I just messaged you on Instagram DMs like hey don't know if you've thought about this or have been thinking about this, but would love to talk more. And you got back to me almost immediately like, yeah, I've been talking to my agent about this. I'm going to send her your way. And it's just kind of, I got an email from your agent and then we had a great call. And what I loved about that call was there was clear synergy between ideas that we had, the things that I, when I thought about your story and the things I've heard you speak about, I already had ideas that this would be a great kid's book. This would be a great kid's book. That would be a great kid's book. And then we sat in the call and you already had almost all those ideas already planned out or lined up. And if you didn't, then it was, you were like, oh, I've been thinking about that. And it was just one of those things that it just felt like it was meant to be. And that God really did kind of like order those steps for us to connect because the ideas that I had really did already align with the ideas that you already were working on. And that was just so wonderful to have in the
0: call. Oh, it's so fun for me to hear just kind of the details that God was orchestrating behind the scenes, because I know I was trying to think about how did I start following her? Why did I start following her? I think I had attended a few of the publishing in color conferences that were online and one in person. And then I'm part of the entrusted women group, which is for um, women of color writers and communicators So I think I would noticed your name through that, and another friend of mine who's a children's writer had mentioned that she was working on an idea with you, so started following you as well, have been praying for an editor for years, literally a decade, because my Cora Cook's Ponset book actually came out 11 years ago now. I like to say that she's in middle school. <laughs> so 11 years ago, and I had written a sequel to that book and I had written several other books through the years. I finished a master's program in children's literature and you know had been pursuing along with some other things and a lot of crazy things that happened in my personal life. But I just continued to get rejection letters for the last 10 years. And and the reality is that's a big part of publishing. I mean, I've heard speakers say, if you don't have, you know, a stack of rejection letters or you haven't wallpapered your office in them, that you're not really a real writer because that's just (laughs) part of how it works. But I also had honestly, a sadness in me realizing like I have all these stories. I feel like all these topics that God has given me, especially um, writing books about children from different cultural backgrounds is important to me. Faith is important to me. I had a book about grief and some other things and just kind of wondering why I would have these books in my heart. And I just kept on getting those closed doors. And so there was most definitely an excitement in me when I got your initial Instagram because I was like, oh, wow, this is an editor who I might have some things in common with, not really knowing the breadth of it. And then even with my agent, she and I had talked about just a year before that maybe it was good for me to just really focus on my nonfiction, adult things, devotional, some of the other ideas, a cookbook idea, some things that I had in the works that were for adults, because it was such a difficult time to publish for kids. And there was so much competition and a lot of celebrity books and other things that were coming out. So it was just so crazy how a year later, the entire landscape changed. And then because of Instagram, you and I were able to connect. And I love that meeting because I did feel like I'm going to start weeping right now. Like Everything that she's bringing up are either books that I have a rough draft of, I've written before, or something I've actually talked to my agent about writing. And so it did seem like, like, I love the word synergy, that bringing together of ideas and that there's this multiplied energy. When we are creative together, Um, So I'm really excited about our partnership, and I'm so excited about the work that you're doing in the publishing field and just your passion for multicultural books and books of faith and bringing those together. So let's share a little bit more about the story of Chasing God's Glory, which is the first book that's going to be coming out in spring of 2023. (laughs)
1: We seem so far away, but that's how that's how publishing works. We're a slow business, but we make it happen. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about that first and then we'll get into the description of the book. Can you just do maybe a brief overview for our listeners who might not be familiar? How does that process work from the time of like, you know, talking to an author and signing a contract to actually getting that book to a bookshelf or to an Amazon page, perhaps?
1: Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, as you mentioned before, rejection letters are a huge part of um, publishing, and I have to send out a lot of them. And it's not because you don't like an idea, you don't like the author, but sometimes it's about timing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, every single imprint has business goals they have to make, and they have a certain number of books that they are planning to publish each year, and we have to fit them into seasons. And sometimes like, well, we're already full this season. And so we have to think about next season. And not all authors also want to wait a year to two years to see the book even begin to the process and a children's book specifically takes almost 24 months to make and sometimes you can do it faster but if you want really good quality and you want to make sure that everybody's not (laughs) working overtime hours and you know pushing themselves to the max then you want to give that space and so once we acquire the book we kind of decide what season it's going into we try to base that based on like opportunities that we see sometimes it doesn't really matter a book can come out at any time but sometimes there's something that's very specifically tied to it's a Christmas book it's a Easter book it's a back-to-school book and there's a reason why you might place it in one season versus the other with Chasing God's Glory it's uh, you know a book about family but also like city and celebration. And uh, there's a it's a lot of outdoor moments that we definitely felt a, a spring summer book would be the best for that mm-hmm. placement, because just even visually, that's what families would be doing and thinking about. And so we want to make sure that we thought about like one of those seasons as the prime opportunity for it. And, you know, then we kind of like look for an illustrator. And the process of looking for an illustrator could take longer than you want it to sometimes. A lot of really great illustrators are being booked out two, three years in advance sometimes now, Mm -hmm. um, especially you're looking for a BIPOC illustrator, which is what we wanted because the story you um, were telling, especially with your second book was very tied to your Filipino culture. And we wanted to make sure that the illustrator could bring that sensibilities to the artwork and it wasn't just kind of like they were starting from scratch or knew nothing about the culture and you could tell when an illustrator is connected to the culture because they might add in those little details or just the way they portray people's facial expressions or you know what they decide to put on the art in the walls or any of those things just the details that show you've been to a home of this culture and you lived in this culture and that just makes it that much more real and that much more um Wonderful. So we get the illustrator, takes a while. We kind of, you know, I actually, we were really collaborative at Waterbrook. And so, you know, I shared those illustrators with you. You got to kind of go through the list and then we start illustrating and illustrations take a while because with the picture book, every single page is getting an illustration and we have to decide it's, I tell people that writing a book is kind of like creating a song as well. You have to have those moments where there's that crescendo and decrescendo and quiet moments and loud moments. And so we have all these images that are coming into the illustrator and we're looking at them as here's what the entire book and what came before that, what came after that, you know, do we need to actually change this scene because we've had two really loud scenes and we need to get quieter now. Do we need to actually, you know, and we're just doing that over and over and over again and the illustrator starts with sketches. Then we get some colors and then we tweak those colors. We tweak those sketches, you know, it just keeps on going. And then once it's, final it just needs to go through a lot of proofing right making sure there's not any errors that everything's right it needs to get laid out properly choosing fonts and then it gets sent to the printer and uh printers it's just more efficient and more also uh cost effective to get most children's books printed overseas and so that means that you are sending it to China or Hong Kong or Taiwan anywhere that's just not the U.S. (laughs) and and that means there's also shipping that you have to keep in mind. It's going to be on those big shipping containers. And that's anywhere from three to five months for it to just get that physical book into our hands in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of why it takes so long. It's like the illustration part, especially is probably where it takes the longest amount. Is just like giving that illustrator space to really create beautiful artwork. And then we just, you know, go over and over until we kind of get exactly what we're looking for. And then we send it out to the world.
0: Well, I appreciate you covering that journey of the book, because I think a lot of times when I go and speak for kids groups or do book signings, I get a lot of questions about that. And people don't realize, first of all, that even the illustration part is separate. A lot of people think that the author does their own illustrations or has to find that illustrator by themselves. And for me right now, it's been really delightful to be part of this illustration process, because when I... Published my Quora book, it was with a different company and it was definitely in a different time. So it was not as collaborative as the process with your company. And I have loved just being a part of the conversations and being able to, like you said before, look at some of the different illustrators and give some input. That's not something that I did with my journey with the Quora book at all. So I think it's good for people to just realize like you don't get to hold that book in your hand until sometimes two or three years later. We try
1: definitely to keep it under two as much as possible, but you know, you just never really know. And, um, kind of, Sometimes an illustrator needs more time. Sometimes also you're holding out for that perfect illustrator. So you even hold off the book a bit longer or, you know, just different elements. And But a book usually comes becomes available for pre-order and people can start finding more information about it and seeing illustrations themselves about six months before the book's release date. And so you can go to Amazon or barnesandnoble.com or bookshop.org or wherever you'd like to buy your books and start actually placing those orders. And I always tell authors to tell their readers this, but pre-orders is the best thing you can do for an author if you want to support them it lets the publisher know, oh, we might need to increase the, the, the ma- amount that we print because more people want it than we thought they would because we're kind of making guesses to be honest. Yes. And so we, you know, so we make a guess like, okay, we think you could probably sell X amount of copies based on the fact that this other book sold X amount of copies. So we print that number. But if we start getting pre-orders in, that lets us know, okay, there might be actually more interest than we realize. And that's a good... And we wanna make sure that also we have books available for the readers when they want it. And so if we pre-order it, we're able to make sure we have the right number, but also it lets other booksellers know that, oh, this book is means something. I should probably have it on my shelves. I should actually buy a copy for my bookstore too and talk about it with my people. Keep your eye out. Follow Darina when you get the chance. Please pre-order, I would say, and support her that way.
0: Thanks for explaining that. Yeah, I think the pre-order thing is something even as an author, I've only come to more understand in the last couple of years. And, you know, people don't realize you could, you can just go to Amazon or you can go to, like she said, whatever bookseller you want to go to and you can order that book and it you'll get it when it's released. But mm-hmm. it also gives that indication to others, like there's people who are interested. So I have a weekly newsletter that I sign up. I send out to my listeners. Um, If you want to hop over to darinagilmore.com and that link will also be in the show notes, but I'd love to stay more in touch with all of you listeners more personally with that. And I always will be putting details as they transpire with the children's books. Bumi had mentioned Chasing God's Glory. So that's the first book that's going to be coming out. And I'm so excited. It's really uh, a foundational book for me, for those of you maybe who have followed me in other spaces. I've written a Bible study called Glory Chasers, and I'm working on a nonfiction book as well. I've done a lot of Bible teaching around this theme of being a glory chaser. But this is really fun because we actually get to show kids and their parents what it looks like and feels like to chase God's glory, meaning experience it in your everyday lives. I've gotten a few peeks at some of the illustrations. I'm so excited how it's coming together so that people can kind of go on that journey. Let's shift gears a little bit here. Let's talk about the second book. It's called Kailani's Gift. And maybe you can help me, Boomi. let's whet the appetite of our listeners a little bit. What's that one about? Or why was that one um, appealing to you? Yeah, so this one does not have any
1: explicit faith content in the same way chasing God's glory does. And that was still intriguing to me for a couple of different reasons. One, I do think that as American Christians, we kind of have really kind of whitewashed faith in a sense where we see faith as a very, as a monolith. And a lot of times when you go to some churches or you're, especially if you're even sometimes multi ethnic communities, it really is, you know, one culture with different faces there. And it was really important to me to really honestly show that God, ultimately has blessed us, everybody in the world with culture and with different ways to express their understanding of him and love and compassion and all these different things. And I think it's important that we see that and that we're able to celebrate culture as part of his uh, creativity, just as much as we celebrate nature or the way that we celebrate actual artwork that we should celebrate culture too. And so while the content itself was not specifically talking about God, I thought it was just such a beautiful story. It's about a girl named Kailani who wants to learn this traditional Filipino dance because it'd be a great gift for her grandparents and to celebrate them and celebrate the love that they have shared and the legacy that they've basically passed down, right? Generation and generations to her own family. And I just thought it was such a sweet story. And not only was it celebrating culture, but it also again, shows that idea of community and love and Again, just the blessing of what it means to pass down a legacy, which I think are all things that matter to also, you know, a Christian audience. But I also love the fact that it would appeal to a non-Christian audience, and it's an opportunity to introduce other people to you as a person and to your fuller story. And so, people who may not come to chasing God's glory might come to Kailani, discover you as an author, might look up some of your other books, might look you up, and still get to hear about who God is and the love that He has for them. And that could be ultimately like a witnessing tool in some way. but even if it's not, it's an opportunity to remind kids that they're seen and that they're loved exactly as who they are. And that's exactly what I think what God wants all of us to feel from the get go, whether or not we respond to him or not. He wants us to feel his love and to feel seen by him. And so I just really loved the fact that it was doing this in such a very simple way, but it's also a celebration story. So it's just also really fun to read and to mm-hmm. see like the celebration between families in that way.
0: Oh, this is so fun. See, I'm learning more details from you that I didn't even know before. So some of that um, backstory, I think, is just really good for the the listeners to hear and then even for me to hear. So I want to just also share that Kailani's Gift was originally written as a sequel to my Cora Cook's Ponsit book. And my original editor, which that imprint or that company got bought out by a larger company, Lee and Low Books, and now as an imprint, my original editor, uh, Renee Ting, had asked me if I would write a sequel for Cora. So there's been lots of different versions of this book and edits through the years, and literally, I wrote it eleven years ago. <laughs> so I want to share that because I suspect that we have some listeners today who have been waiting for a long time. Maybe it's not a publishing journey, but maybe they've been waiting for something else in their life. You feel like you've been called to do something, but it just doesn't seem like the doors are opening. And so here's an example of a book that I wrote 11 years ago, probably gave up on it several years ago because I had gotten so many rejection letters on it. And I changed it and I brought it to my critique group. I'll mention my friend, Amy Dixon, who is one of my critique partners, who's been with me through the years. She's probably seen dozens and dozens of versions of this crazy book. And so I feel like it's as much her book as mine because she's encouraged me so much along the way. But that is part of the journey of books too, is that they morph and they change And now is that just right moment. It's the, for such a time as this to quote out of the book of Esther, that right now we're going to, you know, bring this book to life. Well, actually it releases in 2024. So let me be clear that it won't be in our hands for a couple of years, but it's already in the works and illustration and that process is in the works. So Kailani is coming to life, but it wasn't her time 10 years ago, and now it is. And I love hearing some of your thoughts on you know, why that time is now and why it's personally important to you. Let's talk a little bit more about publishing Christian children's books. I know that one of the things that I was so excited about connecting with you is that you have this passion for multicultural books, as you were talking about, but then you work for a company that's Christian and faith-based. So how do you see those two coming together? And and what's the need in the market right now for those types of books?
1: Yeah. So in the publishing space as a whole, right, every single imprint has its own focus. And I'm currently working for one that is very faith-focused, specifically Christian-focused. There are some other ones that are faith-focused that will do a range of stuff, but we are... Focus specifically on Christian books, and what's interesting is that our sales team—I'm part of I'm part of the Penguin Random House family, which is a much larger company—and so they have a very large sales force who goes out to every single bookstore, and you know anybody who can sell books, they're selling to them and trying to sell to them. And they've come back to our team over the years saying, "People want more faith books. People want more faith books. People want, want more faith books." And specifically more children's faith books. They're looking for books that they could share with their children. And there's definitely a subset of people. There's some books that we call Faith Light, uh, because there's a subset of people who maybe don't know fully what they believe about God, or they're still working out kind of exactly what they believe, but they still want their children to believe in this higher being and this concept of this great love that is from above. And so they are looking for these books that still offer a little bit of faith content, but maybe it's not tied to a specific religion. And so there's just a lot of opportunities for us to pour in in that area. And that's something that we're trying to develop more and just really focus on. And so that's one of the reasons why I got hired with Waterbrook. And then personally for me, you know, I... Growing up, books have been very important to me and have been a huge part of my own development. And I have my favorite books and the books that I've read over and over again, right? And all those things. And, but I, if I thought, when I thought through all of that, I did also realize that there was very few books that actually had a character that looked like me Mm -hmm. or even, um, had my experiences. So if it had a Black character, it was very much a Black American character who maybe grew up in a very specific background and had very specific experiences that were very far removed from my own specific experiences and um, experience as a Nigerian American. And so I think there was just a moment, especially when I was teaching and trying to help my students find books that would appeal to them so that they would become better readers and actually enjoy the act of reading, which some of them did, some of them didn't. And, and some of them didn't because like, they just were bored by books, right? Most of the books they had read, like it just doesn't appeal to me. I'm, yeah. I don't relate to this. I don't care about this. And I just think about how much I understand the world better. And I understand people even have just more empathy for others because the stories I read. And I really wanted to make sure that like, there was books on the market that allowed kids to do that process. There's also just a lot of research that show that when you don't see yourself in things, mm-hmm. you kind of limit your own p- potential. Mm -hmm. and it's not intentional you don't even know that you're doing it but a piece of you kind of just makes yourself small because you look out in the world and you're like well that's not for me and that's not for me and that's not for me because you don't see any representation of yourself there and when I think about even my choice to become an editor later in life I think I might have actually gone for it right out of college if I even had that representation Mm -hmm. but I didn't. And I, so I didn't even really think about the fact that there was a possibility for me to have this type of career and work in books. For me, it's really important, especially as a Christian who believes that all people are made in the image of God and therefore have worth and have value inherently, regardless of anything else, for kids to begin to see themselves as valued from the very beginning. And I think mm. uh, that's one of the reasons why I think having more multicultural books in this faith-based space is especially important because we if that's what we believe, then I feel like our the things that we produce should reflect our beliefs, right? If I truly believe that all people are created equal, if I truly believe that all people ultimately have worth and God loves all people, then our books, our movies, or whatever should reflect that and ultimately show that representation. And even if we think about revelations and the description of what the new heaven and earth will look like as far as all tribes, nations, and tongues, and everything else, and like, then we should also be You know, bring a piece of heaven to earth as we while we can now in our artwork as well too, and that includes books. My employer is really supportive of that, and really also feels strongly about the fact that we need to have more representation in the faith space. And it's also just true in publishing as as a whole, right? About I think it was 2015, maybe 2014. We need diverse books came out as an organization Mm. to talk about how like we just really have very small percentages of books. You're actually a lot more likely to find a book with an animal character in it than you will see a book with a child of color. Hmm. those percentages are small. And, you know, it's, if you're the kid, it it may seem like it does not matter, but I do think there's a silent message that's being sent to you um, when you're not seeing that representation over and over again. So, that's kind of one of my personal <laughs> missions and goals, and mm-hmm. is very high on my list of things as an editor, where it's not like I'm not going to acquire anybody who's not a person of color, or I'm not going to acquire somebody that does not celebrate diversity, but it's something I'm always looking for and something that I'm really trying to pull out, and that's actually also one of the reasons why I reached out to you as well, too, is I was really on the hunt for voices of color who I felt could speak to children and really honestly help them not only see God... In themselves, and see how you know God loves them as they are, but also help them see God in the world. So that even when a white kid picks up these books, right, they're able to kind of recognize their brothers and sisters in people who don't look like them. And so that's kind of just something that's really important to me as I think about the books that I acquire, the books that I'm going to edit, the books that I want to put out in the world. Is really just making sure that how much of this truly does re- reflect what God. Um, says about his people and says about his children. If we can have kids understand that message as young as possible and just really feel loved and seen by God and as early as possible, then I think it just makes the rest of their life that much more uh, beautiful. It's just easier to hear that message when you're older, if you already kind of know it in your core
0: Mm -hmm. from the beginning, right? I'm so glad you shared that. You know, It's so powerful for me because I think about my journey, even when I was kid and I was a voracious reader. I was privileged to have a mom who was a teacher. And so she was the one always giving me really good books and reading to me at night and reciting poetry. But I was always longing for those books where I could find kids that looked like me or even just a cultural experience or heritage that I could relate to. And it was difficult to find. And I grew up in the nineties, you know, a little bit in the eighties and the nineties. And there was a little surge at at one point I think for multicultural books that didn't really last super long in publishing but it became a passion of mine similar to yours because as I was growing up I was looking for those books I was longing for those books and then suddenly was like well what would happen if I wrote those books what if I wrote about my experience and then in becoming a mother you know now having three daughters I it's so important to me that my kids have that experience too. And so that they have opportunities and choices. And when they get, you know, the little scholastic book newsletter where they get to order the books from school, or if they read on Epic online, that there are different cultures represented. There's different faith experiences that are represented because that's not necessarily what I had when I was a kid.
1: That's just so, so important in so many different ways. I think, you know, I just can't under, understate how important I think it is. Not having a representation really does impact kids in a lot of ways that we don't even realize. It creates a single story that minimizes ultimately the beauty of diversity in all of us. So even when I'm thinking about, like I was saying earlier with some of those stories about a Black person, again, there's a mon- we're not a monolith, right? And there is this like diversity even within that racial group that... At the moment, if you went to a bookstore, you might only think that black people do three things or something because it's still not as many stories out there as possible. But when I think about a white person, I can think about a million and one things they can be and do and see and everything because there's been books all around about all the different possibilities. even with fantasy and sci-fi. I remember a very funny story of my cousin when we were having um, her baby shower she had a mermaid theme because we knew it was a girl. And uh, we had decided to have a little black mermaid on it. And her mom's first comment was like, mermaids aren't black. Why do you have a black mermaid? And like, completely was <laughs> just like very stressed out about this. And it we was just like, what do you mean they can't black? You know, they, they can be black. You know, they are imaginary, right? So we could <laughs> make them whatever we wanted to, but she had only ever seen white mermaids, all the stuff she had ever bought her kids through all the years. And it just never even occurred to her that could be anything but, you know, and I think that's, wow. So true. I mean, that's an obviously a mythical creature, but just imagine what that means about astronauts or engineers or lawyers or doctors or painters. If like if all I see is this one representation, it's hard to imagine another person as anything but the one thing I've seen them as. And so I think that's one of the things that's just so, so important. We think about what it means to, you know, live out of our, the fullness of who God created us to be. And if, you know, if the world is already limiting what I think I can be, how can I dream begin to dream bigger? Right. So.
0: Oh, that's so good. Okay. Now I'm getting more book ideas as you're talking. (laughs) Good,
1: good. Because I want them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of the things too that you mentioned is that you're Nigerian-American and I'd love it if you could share a little bit about that as well. Before I was born, my dad uh, came to the U.S. for
1: just more education um, and he came sometime in the early 80s by himself. And then my mom and sisters joined him the next year, once he kind of got settled out of seminary and was really sure about like, Hey, this is the degree path I'm going to take. And, um, so that was like 83, 84. And then I was born the next year in 85. I just let you guys all know my age, whatever. And, and, you know, and then my brother actually was born as well too here in the U S. And so we were growing up, um, in Fort Worth, Texas. That's where my dad went to a seminary and literally two weeks after he got his PhD, he's like, okay, so we're going back to Nigeria. And we were on a plane and we were moving. I knew it was happening two weeks before the two weeks, but the date was set exactly two weeks after he got his PhD. And so we packed up our lives and moved back to Nigeria, which is home for him and ultimately home for my mom. And that's, so that's ultimately... Where they were returning to this, that being here was always temporary in their minds. And they just weren't obviously putting on a hold of their family just because it was temporary. And so we lived in Nigeria. I want, I specifically lived in Nigeria for about six years, all of my elementary, all of my middle school, and then I came back for high school. And part of that just was, um, When we moved to Nigeria in late 92, early 93, it was actually still underneath the dictatorship. And there was still a lot of political um, instability that was happening the entire time that we lived there. And we definitely lived in a pretty safe town and safe compound situation that we were never um, personally feel necessarily in danger, but it was not necessarily the most stable. And so when it came to like education and school, there's just more opportunities here. And at the end of the day, I'm a US citizen. My sisters had green cards. They're now US citizens too. Like we had the, the ability to come back and have school here. So we actually all came back for high school. And my siblings and I are all still here and like live, work here. Um, both my sisters are married, although they both married Nigerian immigrants themselves. And so we're raising little Nigerians. And we, you know, that's a huge part of just my own culture and heritage, my identity. My dad actually started church the year I was born in the US. That was an African mission. And, you know, he and my uncle did it together. And they went through the phone book and basically like, if the name sounded African, they called them up and said, Hey, do you want to come to church, (laughs) you know, and end up starting the church that way. So I grew up with a very large Nigerian community. Those people are still actually Like my cousins to me, I call them my cousins, they're my closest friends still, and you know, their parents are like my I consider my aunts and uncles. And you know, even when we came back from high school, we returned back to that church. And so it was just kind of one of those things that's always been a huge part of my own community. And so while I was born in the US, I still highly identified as a Nigerian, but I'm also American. And if I was Nigeria, they would definitely call me what they call Americana, because I'm definitely Americanized compared to some of them as far as cultural choices, my food choices, my clothing choices, right? And I guess I'm a third culture kid in some ways in that way. So my parents themselves weren't missionaries. I just have always lived between these two cultures and yeah,
0: it's just my life. (laughs) Well thanks for giving us a little bit of your history and and that cultural journey for you. I think it just always helps us to get a fuller picture of people's stories when we ask about their cultural background. And you did bring up food. So in my last question here, because I know we're sort of running out of time, I have to ask you about food because we are the Eat Pray Run podcast. (laughs) And I'm wondering if you could share something that is maybe a favorite Nigerian food you like to eat.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Nigerians are eat a variety of things, but rice is something that like never gets old for a Nigerian. We have jollof rice. We also have fried rice. And I love both of those and we we'll can eat them every day. No questions asked. I actually just celebrate my birthday and that's what we decided to make was jollof rice and uh, fried rice. And we also have a lot of fried plantain, which we call dodo that I love. And we also have like some Cultural food with like yams and other things that people tend to eat as well. But I'm definitely a rice girl. Not no questions asked. Any day, <laughs> anytime, I will eat rice and breakfast, lunch, dinner. Don't don't care. I'm happy.
0: <laughs> what are the details of jollof rice? Like what goes into that? What makes it unique?
1: So it's basically a rice that is boiled in tomato, like a tomato stew and paste. So it becomes this really red rice. And you know, there's off eat peppers and onions and other things that. Um, adds the flavor of the the flavor profile of it. If it's cooked like on an outdoor fire with the like the cast iron like pot type situation, it also gets this nice smoky feel and taste to it as well too, which is delightful. And then like you can eat with any sort of meat. So Nigerians eat goat meat, beef, chicken. People will eat any kind of meat to be honest, but those are probably <laughs> the three most popular ones. And you'll oftentimes have fried plantain with it, or roasted plantain, or something else. It's basically a stewed like you know tomato stew type base that like is cooked into
0: that rice. Oh, it sounds amazing. I'm going to try not to drool on myself here as I'm thinking about it. Thank you so much. Or
1: not as spicy as you want. So it's kind of
0: like, <laughs> what's, what can you tolerate? Go. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing a little bit about that too, because I think our food identity is important. It's a part of our culture and you can tell that from what I write about as well.
1: <laughs> yep. I mean, food is yummy. I mean, also food gathers people, right? Food means there's a celebration. Even if it's just like the three of us at a table at the, like when you're breaking bread to people, you cannot not be happy. And
0: it's just such a beautiful way that we can, I think, experience God's glory. We can experience it through the ingredients and the colors, but also like you said, gathering, community, conversation. We can have conversations about faith, but even if our conversation isn't about that, I think that we can glorify and experience that image bearer in each other when we sit down at the table together. I have to tell our listeners, I had the privilege of inviting Bumi to my table just a couple of weeks ago. She was traveling through California. And so we got to serve some Filipino food to her and she got to meet my kids and my husband. So that was really special for us to have you at our table.
1: It was awesome for me. It was definitely a highlight of my travels for sure.
0: (laughs) Well, we are out of time for today. I feel like I could talk to you for hours more, but I just want to ask, how can people... Follow you or support you. What's the best way to see what you're up to?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm an Instagram chunky. So you can follow me on Instagram at Boomi underscore shola. And that's where I post things like where I travel, what I'm reading, what I'm working on, family, friends, just kind of whatever. I'm not really too discriminant about what I post, but that's probably the best and easiest way. I'm on Twitter, but I Twitter very badly. So <laughs> I really am just only on there because that's where most of publishing hangs out. So it helps me stay abreast with work stuff, but Instagram is definitely probably the best and easiest place. And then of course, check out Waterbrook and Multnomah. We have just actually had some updates to our website. You can specifically even go to the kids page and see some of the books that we have already published and some of the books that are coming. And that way you could also just see what
0: we're working on. Perfect. Well, we'll put all those links in the show notes and I will urge you all to follow her on Instagram again, this is how we connected. And it's so fun, especially if you are a reader, to see the books that she's reading and recommending. So check that out. Thank you so much, Bumi, for being my guest today. And I am so excited about continuing to work with you in the future. Same. Thanks for having me. wasn't that an inspiring conversation with Bumi? I love listening to her talk about her passions and her experiences being a teacher and also growing up in Nigeria and here in the U.S. I want to take a few minutes now to just pray for her and some of the things that we talked about in this interview today. Will you join me? Dear God, we thank you that we had the privilege of sitting down for this conversation today we thank you for the work that is happening in children's book publishing and we pray over the future of this publishing industry we pray for more books that represent children from all different cultures that were created in your image, God. We pray for Bumi and her work as an editor, as she acquires stories and helps them come to life. I pray that you would give her strength and energy and inspiration for the work that you've called her to. And Lord, we pray for each person who might be listening today. We pray that they would be able to experience your glory in new ways. God, would you show yourself to us, whether it's through the pages of a book or specifically through the Bible, whether it be through creation or in conversation with other image bearers. We're so grateful for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, and for the ways that he invites us into story. And I just pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Before we close, I just wanted to share a few more details with you about our new Global Glory Chasers membership. This membership is for the parent or educator who longs to make learning interesting and relevant for kids. We will tantalize your taste buds and turn your kids on to history and culture with these curated resources. And now more than ever, we need to listen to one another's stories to learn about diverse histories and engage in each other's cultural traditions. You can use these resources to supplement your homeschool unit or to incorporate in your class lesson plans. We created this just for you. So you can come and explore some new foods or maybe settle in for a movie or a book that might instigate some good family discussion. We want you to make this experience your own. And so for this month, October of 2021, Global Glory Chasers is traveling to the country of Ethiopia, and we're looking forward to November when we will be traveling to England and taking you with us. Head over to my website, darinagilmore.com backslash GGC for Global Glory Chasers, and you can explore all the details of the membership. And while you're there, let me just urge you to sign up for my Glorygram, which is a free letter and resource list that goes out every week. It's my way of staying more personally in touch with you. Thank you, friends, for joining us for season three, episode nine of Global Glory Chasers Eat, Pray, Run podcast. It's such a joy to serve you. Let's chase God's glory together.